Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, tech nerds, whatever the case may be, for what time you're listening. That's a universal greeting for you at this world of easy come, easy go listening. And welcome to Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matt, how are you and what distracted you this week? Yeah, I'm going well, thanks, James. We're still surviving lockdown. We're still not in the same room together. We tried our walk and talk last week. We've gone back to our rooms. Yeah. A bit too wet for a walk and talk today, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. The novelty of this is all over, mate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was over a little while ago, wasn't it? <laughs> but I've been interested this week in the identity theft problem that we've seen around the world over oh, yeah. years gone by. And I actually haven't seen a lot of this lately until the last couple of weeks where I've had a few people that have actually had some identity theft and it hasn't been what I'd call full-blown identity theft. It hasn't been their entire identity has gone, but they've just had some little problems like a loan taken out in their name and they're not making payments on that loan. <laughs> a little problem. And of course, yeah, the bank then yeah. chases them and says, hi, Mr. Eddie, we haven't got your loan repayment. You're in default. And by the way, that's giving you a bad credit rating and your mortgage and your home and your car loan. We're a bit worried about those because he's other loan. And you say, what loan are you talking about? Uh. So there's a couple of examples I've seen of that. And there's nothing that they've done wrong per se. It's just people being able to access so much information now, they can finally get enough information to be you, essentially. Mm. And once they've got that first step, once they can create one bit of identity, then they can go and do lots of other things as you. I suppose the real thing here is just being aware of it, being conscious that it can happen, not necessarily saying, right, I'm going to lock myself away in a house and never leave. Oh, hold on, we're doing that already. <laughs> <laughs> Turn off all, every bit of technology that I've got yeah. and, and never use technology ever again. <laughs> and some of the times when this happens, it's actually not the technology that they're attacking. It's things like stealing a letter that comes to your mailbox that might mm. have, for example, your driver's license. You had to renew your driver's license. They send it out to mm. you and then they get your driver's license. Yep. They go and modify that or they get your details. So there's all sorts of tricks that they use. Unfortunately, you don't know about it until, as I say, you might get a phone call from a bank to say, why haven't you paid your home loan? And so it is, that's living in the 2020s, isn't it? It is, really. Yeah, we've just got to, like living with COVID, we've got to live with um, cyber fraud. I think you're right. And I think the thing is just be aware of flags. Mm. If something happens, it seems a bit strange. If you get a strange phone call, if you get a call from a credit rating agency that wants to know some information, you think, why did I get that call? I haven't applied for a loan lately. I might just check out my bank and just see what's happening. So it's those sorts of things you just have to be aware of because things can happen, which you just take no notice of. What if a duck's back? Who cares about that? Until you realise that that was someone trying to get your identity. Yeah. Well, they're out there, folks, and they're up to no good. Well, I'm glad you've all tuned in for this episode. Matt, you've got some great news for Roomba owners who aren't so much into the poop art. <laughs> and funny memes and videos on the internet. Now, the results are also in on the clash between the people behind the game Fortnite and Apple, and the Rubik's Cube has been souped up for modern puzzlers. But let's kick off with some fun-sized gadgetry, folks. Google Glasses, they were launched back way back in 2014. I thought they were a great idea, but they never really caught on. They even made Google look a bit dumb. But never fear, folks. All good explorers fumble around in the wilderness before the uh, settlers finally arrive, and now Facebook 
is dipping its toe in the smart glasses headspace. Matt, tell us more. I don't know why they are, to be honest, James, because <laughs> they were a bit of a dud with Google. And I agree with you, it did look like they were going to be a really innovative piece of eyewear, some really great technology in them. And I can't believe it was seven years ago that Google Glasses were out. It seems like only well, yesterday. Maybe Zuckerberg thinks, yeah, maybe he can turn it around. Maybe, maybe. Everyone thinks that they can do it better, don't they? Snap, of course, came out with some glasses as well. They tried the idea. Facebook glasses are basically a pair of Ray-Bans that look a bit chunky. They're maybe a retro, trendy sort of style of sunglasses. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, I'm no influencer or style <laughs> style guru, but um, they do look like they're a little bit retro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do. And they've done that <laughs> deliberately because they need to fit the technology in. Yeah, for sure. They've got two cameras, one built into the right and left edge of the glasses. They've got three microphones built into them and a couple of little tiny speakers. So you can be sitting there having a conversation with someone and recording the whole conversation. Why not? And, and these, are, these are better than the ones, those, um, those uh, glasses that you used to be able to order in comic books back in the 70s and the 80s, aren't they? The ones for about 12 bucks? No, no, yeah, they were, they were much better. They're better than those? No, they were x-ray glasses. <laughs> okay, you could right. see through anything with those. <laughs> yeah, okay. oh, Rightio, okay. <laughs> so these, the, the idea is that Facebook says you need to be able to capture every moment of your life. Because let's face it, it's a bit too much work to put your hand in your pocket and pull out a phone and then take a video or a photo of what's happening in your life. You need to be able to do it just there on the spot without removing anything from your pocket. And who needs an actual memory in your brain when you can just take photos and videos of absolutely everything? And just replay them back. Yeah, just replay them back. And live your life twice over. Yeah, well, that's right. On every TV show, on every criminal show now, the crime is only solved by CCTV. If we didn't have CCTV, I don't know how crimes would be solved anymore. And this would be perfect. <laughs> you just have your glasses on constant record so that anything that happens, you can say, there we go, just play back the recording. Where's Billy's CCTV from that event? We'll go back and have a look at it. Sounds too simple, doesn't it? Sherlock Holmes would have been so boring back in the... <laughs> when it was written back in the day. Just play back the video. There's the guy. (laughs) So I think the real concern here is the privacy issue. Because they look like glasses, and yes, they're obvious that there's something a little bit different about them, and Facebook have said, but we've got a little flashing LED in them. Now, when you're talking to someone, or even if you're a few metres away from someone, you're probably not staring into their glasses to see if they've got a flashing LED. So I think the real concern here is that you could be just chatting away, having a conversation with someone, complaining mm. about the government, complaining about your boss, who knows? And next thing you know, you're watching the video of you talking, saying things that maybe you didn't really want the world to hear about on Facebook the next day. They have given one concession, which isn't much of a concession. They say it doesn't work with Facebook Live, so you can't do it and live stream, but you can do it and put it up a few minutes later, Mm. which I don't know is much different to live streaming really. But people could be in a small crowd, people could be one-on-one, people could be anywhere, and they've got the glasses on and they're recording everything that's happening. They make it a little bit obvious that something is going to start. You have to put your hand up and tap on the glasses to actually start the recording or take a photo. So some people would be doing that anyway. They might be scratching their head. You can also say, hey, Facebook, and actually start them recording or taking a photo with that, which might seem a bit funny, having a conversation. How are you going, James? Hey, Facebook. And you're going, why are you talking to Facebook in the middle of our conversation? So that might be a bit of a giveaway that something's happening. But tapping on the glasses, I think, isn't that obvious. And Current Affair and Today Tonight, they're going to love this. <laughs> it's a whole new range of journalism, I can see. <laughs> One of the ones I loved about the old Google Glasses, some people were very offended by Google Glasses and thought they were a terrible thing for mankind. And famously, there was a bar in San Francisco 
And if you came in with Google Glasses on your face, in your pocket, wherever, you were banned. And they put up a sign and they had a term for people. And they said, anyone that's wearing those glasses, you're not welcome here. We call them glass holes, was their little funny pun on the <laughs> on the actual people wearing those glasses and what they thought of them. I don't know that you would be welcome in lots of establishments with these glasses on. Imagine a cafe, maybe the waitress is a bit busy, someone takes a bit too long to get their food. Next thing you know, here's this whole scene being played out on yeah. social media. Wow. I don't think they'll go well. I don't think it'll be a big hit. I think there'll be too many privacy concerns. And I am, again, a bit confused as to why Facebook are doing it, but hell, I'm not Facebook, so what the heck, Mark, do whatever you like. <laughs> and who's going to argue with him? Well, maybe the consumer. What happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? Well, we found out when Apple and Epic went head-to-head, and the result was a big bang, Matt. The result is kind of a little bit of a loss for Apple and a bit more of a loss for Epic. And it's interesting because Epic was saying a couple of things. Epic said, first of all, Apple is being a big, bad monopoly and only allowing people to use Apple apps by going through the App Store. We want some other way of being able to download apps to use on an iPhone. So that was their first battle. Their second battle was when people buy things in games, and in Fortnite you buy various things in the game to add to the gameplay, that's how they make their money, when you buy various things, you have to go through the App Store, which seems convenient, and Apple would argue seems like it's secure, but the minor problem is there's a 30% charge that Apple have on everything. It's the App Store tax, if you like. Mm. Now, that's big business for Apple. I mean, they've got a $2 trillion company. That alone, that 30% charge alone generates billions upon billions of dollars for Apple every single year. Take that away from Apple, suddenly their profitability, well, I'm sure it's not going to collapse tomorrow, but it certainly gets a little bit of a, a dent in it. And this case that came down, the ruling that came down, actually did affect Apple's share price. It did knock a little tiny bit off the share price because of it. Yeah, well. What the judge said was, Epic, you were naughty. You did things that were outside the agreement with Apple, so you owe Apple some money because you didn't pay them their 30% and you let people buy things in the game that were going outside the Apple ecosystem. So the judge told Epic to pay Apple US $3.7 million. That's how much Apple lost in the 30% charge where Epic went outside the ecosystem. In the whole scheme of things, $3.7 million for Epic and for Apple is a drop in the ocean. It's nothing. Yeah. But it's more the fact that Epic did the wrong thing. You signed an agreement with Apple and you went against that agreement. That's why you've got to pay the money. The slight, ever so slight concession that was given to developers around the world was that Apple have got to allow people to set up some sort of payment system outside the App Store. So you still got to get the app through the App Store. So Apple will be happy about that. They keep control of that. Mm. The judge was happy with that process. But they just said, yeah, maybe having everyone have to use your App Store and charge them 30%. Sure, I can understand for some developers that's convenient. But for everyone, there's some people out there big enough, like Epic, where it's okay for them to set up their own payment system. So Epic can go through and do that. But at the moment, Epic is not on the App Store. They've had this blue going on for some time now, so they're actually not on the App Store. So they've got to get back on the App Store (laughs) for people to actually download the game to keep playing it to then set up a separate payment system. So they've picked up their bat and ball and and walked out. Is that what you're saying there? Well, Apple kicked them off. When they went outside the agreement, they kicked them off. Take your bat and ball and go home. (laughs) Yeah, and when that happened... 
they could have played ball, if you like. They could have come back in and said, yes, we'll adhere to your rules. But that's when the whole court battle started. Epic will have some sort of appeal process that will go on, I'm sure. The solicitors haven't made enough money out of this process yet, so there'll be some appeal process. But I suspect that Epic will put their tail between their legs slightly and go back on the App Store, adhere to their conditions, but set up some sort of external payment system. And any of the game providers or any of the app providers that are big enough, they'll do that. They'll set up some sort of separate payment system to allow people to pay for it, but they'll still have to use the App Store to go through and do that process. It's part of the arrogance of Apple, I think. When you're Apple, when you're a US $2 trillion company, when you're the biggest company in the US and almost the biggest in the world, you kind of say, these are our rules, you play by them or you don't. There's not a lot of bargaining power that people have. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, there's, there's no comeback for it. Oh, well, you play by their rules, folks. You play by their rules. Here's another story for the aluminium hat wearers. That anti-radiation sticker that you bought and thought would protect you from that dangerous radiation emission from your phone, well, I hope it's scratch and sniff, folks. At least then it might have some use. Matt, tell us how Amazon has made some more money for nothing. Well, that'd be a good use, wouldn't it? Scratch and sniff, that's about the most useful thing I've ever heard of for these stickers, James, because <laughs> there's certainly no way they're going to stop radiation. And what I don't understand here, James, is that if the stickers did what they claim to do, Put this sticker on, it will protect you from those terrible electromagnetic fields that come out of your mobile phone. Mm. If they did protect you from that, the phone would be useless. If you put your phone in a little tiny Faraday cage to stop all the EMF coming out of it, then it wouldn't be able to get the signals to a mobile phone tower that might be several kilometres away, so it would be useless. And you would have yourself a paperweight. (laughs) Exactly right. A paperweight that you might play some games on. Obviously not Epic Games because they're not on the App Store at the moment, but you wouldn't be able to do much with it in terms of communicate to the outside world. These smart dot stickers, there was some investigation done at the beginning of the year, and the Advertising Standards Authority, this is in the UK, said, you know what, smart dot, these stickers don't actually seem to do anything You've got to stop making these claims about what they're doing. Now, here we are eight months later, and they're still making the same claims. The University of Surrey said, we'll go and do some testing on them. We'll get some highly sensitive equipment. We'll put a mobile phone there. We'll test the electromagnetic radiation coming out of that mobile phone. We'll put a sticker on. What the heck? We'll put a couple of stickers on, (laughs) and we'll test the radiation again. And there's no surprise here, James. The amount of difference they detected was approximately... Zero. <laughs> yep. So there was no difference whatsoever between... And, and everyone fell over. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There was no surprise there. But in their defence, the makers of the smart dot said, of course, the scientific testers with their fang-dangled equipment that goes beep in the middle of the night, that wouldn't detect any difference in it because they said that it wouldn't measure the harmonising effects of the stickers because they would require biological testing. So there you go. That's why the scientists with their equipment couldn't pick up anything. Of course. And they needed some crystals or something, didn't they? Yeah. They did. Align them in the right way, throw the chakra down on the ground, who knows what. But (laughs) the message here is really any of those things that you see out there that protect you from EMF, that are going to protect you from these terrible mobile phones – we're getting more radiation from the sun. Every day we go out in the sun, mm. you, know, you would be able to tell me in greater detail, we're getting much more radiation from the but, sun. But the radiation we're getting from our phone is the wrong frequency. It's too low a frequency to be an issue. Exactly right. To use a scientific term, it's non-ionising radiation. So it's never going to move those electrons That's right. up to a higher level. Yeah, yeah. So be exposed to that as much as you like. Now, back in 1973, I think it was, that Dr. Martin Cooper made the first mobile phone call working for Motorola. 
Motorola at the time, 73 we've had mobile phones. Now, sure, they weren't in great use then, mm. but we've had mobile phones in use by enough people around the world now that if there was this great ah. cancer pandemic or some great health issue, we would see people all around the world being affected by this. And James, I've been using a phone, I've been using a phone, I've been using a phone for 30 years and it's never affected me, never affected me, never affected me. <laughs> I'm joking, folks. I'm joking. <laughs> a very poor attempt at a joke. But I think this is the thing. When you see these claims, just apply a bit of common sense to them. If it protected you against the radiation, the phone would be useless. Obviously, they're doing nothing. The only thing they're doing is making your wallet lighter and the people, I'd almost call them scammers, James. Maybe it's too harsh on them because they're just maybe appealing to the gullible, but they're lying in what they're doing. They're lying in their claim. Looking for the placebo effect, I think. Maybe. Yeah, the placebo effect. Maybe. But I see people with them. I see people with stickers, with cases, with all sorts of things that are protecting them from the radiation. And I start to have a conversation with them about non-ionizing. I start the conversation with them about the radiation we get from the sun mm. and their eyes just gloss over and I throw my hands up in the air and I give up. They've done their internet research. That's right. Who am I to argue? So we can post those stickers into that file uh, for the ineffective solutions for imaginary problems. Is that right? <laughs> That's it. Yeah, maybe, maybe if they stuck some of those stickers on wind turbines, that it solves some problems there as well. <laughs> and sticky tape some crystals to it while you're at it and rub some essential oils on it. Oh, look, I'm going to start really offending people in a minute. I'm a bit worried about your crystals. You, you seem to have a bit of an affinity with crystals, James, more than I realised. Oh, I just haven't had them work as well for me. The, you know, I just need them to actually do something. Foxtel has made some changes, some big changes, with its new set-top box. And subscribers, you can now finally take that satellite dish off your roofs and hoard it in the garage with the other redundant stuff. Matt, they've asked us to get rid of our satellite dishes. When I saw this story, I thought to myself, hang on, is this 20 years old? Is this story from the past? I've got to confess, I'm not a Foxtel subscriber. You're telling me I no longer need that satellite dish that has been buried in my garage for so long. It does kind of feel like someone at Foxtel has been in some sort of suspended animation state. We've talked about that before. Maybe they've been in one of those places, James, where they've been suspended for 20 years. They've mm. come out and then someone said, hey, we've got streaming. Why do we need a satellite anymore? And that's exactly where they've come to. Now, they've had their old set-top box, the IQ4. It's had the ability to receive its programs via satellite, but you can use the internet to go back and start a program again or do some on-demand. So they did realise that there was a thing called streaming out there, but the primary delivery mechanism for Foxtel until now has been via a satellite dish on your roof and some geostationary satellites sitting 36,000 kilometres above the Earth and sitting above Australia, obviously. So that's been the primary mechanism. But they finally said, you know what? This streaming thing seems to be taking off. I reckon it's going to be a goer. So we're going to build a new box, which is smaller, more convenient. You don't have to get a satellite dish. And for people in apartment blocks, for people in houses that are a bit yeah, complicated to get onto the roof, for people that have got maybe asbestos on their roof, for example, and then you can't drill through the roof, all these people that have had these problems with satellite installations in the past, suddenly you just plug in the box. Even the installation process, I'm sure during the pandemic, it's been pretty hard to get a satellite dish installed. I'm sure it's taken weeks or months to get someone out there and suddenly you don't need it anymore, James. Hooray! Matt, it almost sounds too simple, doesn't it? <laughs> you just need a box to, to be somewhere hidden in your lounge room. <laughs> That's it. Maybe they've got a new employee that used to work at Netflix or somewhere and they've said, wake up, here we go, you plug this in and this internet thing just seems to give you stuff. It sounds fantastic. So it is a good move. It means that people that have got their old satellite dishes will continue on with them. If you've got an IQ3 or an IQ4 box, that'll keep working. 
And there is some relevance for that because there are some people in regional Australia that have terrible internet connections. And in fact, some of them do use satellite for their internet connection. So going to a set-top box that relies on the internet would still mean they were actually using satellite of some form. Yeah, right. So for those people, Foxtel is going to keep the satellite going. And I dare say that will keep going for some time. But I don't think we'll see any upgrades to the Foxtel satellite system. I don't think we'll see any upgrades to the boxes that receive the signals from this. I think this will be the way they'll forge forward. And now it really comes down to, as with all streaming providers, James, it comes down to the content. That's the real mm. battleground at the moment for all these different streaming providers. So if Foxtel can provide better content, then they'll win the day. If someone else provides better content, then they'll win the day. And that's what the competition is all about. So what you're saying, quality of content is going to become the, the thing that d- decides things. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Apparently, yeah. <laughs> Not the technology that's delivering it. Who, who knows? And that's maybe been the Foxtel argument. No, no, we've got better technology. We've got satellite. But people want to see the content. <laughs> want to see what they want to see, yeah. This podcast is sponsored by Podbean. Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. We use Podbean to host Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Download the free Podbean podcast app to start, record and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Podbean provides everything you need to run your podcast and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Download the free Podbean app today. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Head on over to Podbean at www.podbean.com and use the code PODCAST21 for your first 30 days of podcast hosting for free. Check it out. If you have a large multinational company of your own with its own streaming service, with its own TV shows, then it makes sense that you'd make every single show an advertisement for your company, right? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Apple TV+. Plus. Matt, they've given up on any form of pretense here, haven't they? They've just got 24-7 advertising now, haven't they? Oh, it is, James. And I love the job. There was one guy who had the job. I don't know whether he did any spare time or he convinced his boss this was a good thing to do, but he sat down and watched 74 Apple TV Plus shows (laughs) and documented the information from those shows. Imagine going to your boss and saying, I've got this great idea for a story. I just need to sit at home for two weeks and watch 74 episodes of a show. (laughs) And just watch telly. That's right. (laughs) With a pen and paper by my side. I swear that I'm doing it for research. It's not because I really enjoy those shows. But what he came up with out of that was in those 74 shows, he found over 700 Apple product placements. Now, if you're someone that wants to get a show on Apple TV+, Plus, you take a script along to a producer, they engage a director, all the normal process you would go through if you were going and seeing a normal movie studio. But there's a slight little caveat in all of that. You have to use Apple products in all of the information that you're putting forward. That will be Apple Sounds. That will be Apple devices, MacBooks, iPads, phones. It will be Apple products twisted into the plot and in one episode of ted lasso and I actually quite like ted lasso it's a good show but in one episode and i remember it well he said i have to go on facetime with my wife they're going through a divorce at the time i have to go on facetime with my child for christmas it was never do a video call it was always facetime the proprietary name from apple i'd never heard of ted lasso and then i thought well in reading the notes for, for the show today i was thinking oh i'll have a look at the trailer for it and i went and looked at the trailer for ted lasso it's a funny funny sitcom it stars jason sudeikis he's a really funny guy if you've never seen him before and just watching a minute or two minute um trailer there was at least a dozen some subtle some very unsubtle product placements 
here's the Apple iPhone, here's the iPad, bang, we're talking about FaceTime. It's it just like it was so in your face, and that's just the trailer. Are you sure you didn't just watch an Apple ad? Or is it hard to tell the difference now? <laughs> the name Ted Lasso fe- featured in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was an Apple ad and they used Ted Lasso in there rather than a Ted Lasso ad. Yeah, used Apple you're in right, there. you're right. But that's, you, you're spot on though. It is the, the lines are blurred. Using it intertwined into the plot. He even makes mention in one show of having to buy some Apple stock. I mean, that's getting pretty bold. It's not even subtle. It's just <laughs> so obvious there. It's not even subtle. It's just... <laughs> Folks, here it is. Bam, I've hit you in the face with a big baseball bat and it's got Apple written all over it. Yeah, right. And the thing is that I've watched the show and I didn't actually really notice it. And then when I read this article, I went back and watched a couple of other shows and I went, wow, it is so obvious. As you say, every part of it. But here's the thing that I absolutely love. Apple being Apple are so protective of their image and they want to control every part of their image. In these shows, in these 74 shows that this person watched, he looked at some of the villains or bad guys or not nice people in some of those shows. You can only get to use the Apple products if you're a nice guy. <laughs> so any of these people in these shows that was a bad guy or a villain, if you like, they had either non-branded or obviously branded competing products of Apple. So I wouldn't have thought they would have liked any of the products that weren't Apple products in the shows, but in the hands of a bad guy... Absolutely. We can put those products in the hands of a bad guy. Yeah, using Android phones and whatnot. <laughs> and they're always complaining about how they're not working. <laughs> yeah, right. It's so it's, slow. It's, I wish I had a better phone. Where could I get one from? <laughs> it's just so brazen and shameless. I absolutely love it. It's like it's like trying to feed your kids vegetables. And the only way you can do it is mash it in your mashed potatoes. Um, <laughs> and your mashed potatoes come out looking all green. But at least the kids are going to take that. <laughs> So the pro directors in, in these shows, I think, have obviously been compromised somewhat because if they've got a script that doesn't use an Apple product, they're being told they've got to use Apple products as part of the script, otherwise their show won't get to air. Mm. But product placements work, and I actually did a bit more research on this because I was actually intrigued about whether or not it made a difference because, sure, we can talk about it, we can joke about it and say, gee, Apple is so brazen, but does it actually make any difference? I found a couple of bits of information that said that Absolutely, it does. 1927, James, was the first example of product oh, placement. Oh, wow. 27? The first ever Academy Award winner for the best picture was a movie called Wings, and they were paid by Hershey's Chocolates to actually put Hershey's bars in. It was a silent movie, in the silent movie. Presumably, people would eat it and then have a big smile on their face after they ate it. But a few <laughs> ones that most people would be familiar with, E.T., Steven Spielberg approached M&M's, went to the Mars company and said they'd like to have M&M's in the movie and they wanted to be paid some money and M&M's said, no, bad luck, we, we don't want to pay you money to do that. So they went and used Hershey's again. Hershey's paid a million dollars to be the candy of choice for the alien E.T. Sales within two weeks of the film doubled. Oh, so what? Wow. if you wonder whether it makes a difference, there's something as simple as the chocolate. Tom Cruise in Risky Business, remember that famous scene where he comes out yeah. in his underwear sliding across there? Seeing the Bob Seger, yeah. Yep. He wore some Wayfarer <laughs> sunglasses. Ray-Ban was about to can that set of sunglasses because they didn't actually sell that well. They sold 18,000 in the year before Risky Business came out. They paid to be in Risky Business and they actually paid to be in 60 TV shows and movies over the next few years. But just as a result of Risky Business, 18,000 turned into 360,000 sales. And within three years, they're at one and a half million a year based on the back of product placement. They didn't do any advertising. They just did product placement in movies. There's been things like Mini Coopers used in the Italian job, up 22%. BMW Z3. The BMW Z3 used in a James Bond movie when they'd been using Aston Martins for years hadn't actually been released when it was used in a James Bond movie. 
and it was really soon after the movie, as you can imagine, they received 9,000 orders for a car that hadn't even been released. So this sort of product placement absolutely works. Tom Cruise loves it in Top Gun. He used aviator sunglasses. Sales went up by 40%. It just goes on and on. So obviously... People say this works. So Apple have said, well, if it works, why not take it into overdrive? Well, we watched that movie, uh, The Truman Show, with Jim Carrey. Remember that yeah, movie? Yeah. The Truman Show from, I think it was in the 90s or whatever. And we kind of laughed about how blatantly they, they made a bit of a joke of it, even uh, the really obvious product placement that was occurring in, in that movie about a show. And we're there. We are there. It's are 2021 there. and we are there. Wayne's World is a great parody of it. There's a scene yeah, in Wayne's World where they one. hold up about yeah. 10 different product brands and say, this is terrible, the fact that they use these different brands. So, anyway, I'm just going to get a drink of my San Pellegrino sparking water and put on my Nike equipment. I've got to go for a ride on my Trek bike in a minute, James. <laughs> <laughs> Better hurry up then. Let's talk about the Roomba. How about those videos about the Roomba? And the Roomba, it's traveling through the, um, you've got that that home security camera um, filming there, and they're all over the internet. It finds the pet poop and then proceeds to paint the shag pile carpet a shade of brown that you would have never chosen to match your decor. Uh, That is hilarious, folks. I love it. Those Roomba engineers, they they need to get busy solving the problem. Or have they done it already, Matt? They've done it already. And I actually love the fact that this has been a major focus for them. Well, it's not great press when they've got those videos all over the net. There's there's many of them. No, you're spot on. With dog poo. So I've, I've got a couple of these and I actually love them. I think they do a really good job. But luckily, we've never had that problem or if we did, we could go and post a video and go make it go viral because people do love watching someone else's <laughs> misfortune, some schadenfreude there, I think. But they've spent a lot of time with computer vision, artificial intelligence, and wait for it, Play-Doh. Oh, right. The CEO said their engineers have spent a lot of time with Play-Doh making up things that look like poo. So they put them together in different shapes, lump them differently, paint them differently, and they've taught the actual Roomba to go along and go, oop, I know what that is. That's poo. I'll go around that. <laughs> it even gets to the point where if it's not sure about it, if it comes across something that's doing the vacuuming now and says, ooh, I think that might be, but I'm not sure. Maybe it's not. It actually sends you a photo or an image to your phone to say, can you please confirm, is this poo or not? Should I avoid it or can I vacuum it up? You do that on your phone. And of course, that then adds to the machine learning and adds to the whole ecosystem of Roombas with all the machine learning. So something that happens in your house, it learns what a poo looks like in your house. That helps the Roomba in my house. So that whole ecosystem All that machine learning. So that's fantastic. Some great technology here just to make up for the fact that we're all a bit lazy and couldn't be bothered doing the vacuuming. (laughs) (laughs) We've got a bigger problem now. The internet's got to come up with something funnier than uh, a Roomba painting the floor work like uh, Proheart painting. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) There's always cats, James. Don't forget the cats. I don't know. You keep forgetting these cats. There's always cats out there. (laughs) So they have done well. They've come up with an acronym because that's what you need to do if you're going to come up with something new and groovy. It's got to have an acronym. Of course you do. They've come up with the PET Owner official promise or poop for short, <laughs> of, oh, course. of course. Yeah, yeah. And that's a promise that they give to owners that it will not ever, ever, ever run over poo again <laughs> if you buy the latest model, of course. Uh, well, yeah, hey, look, we'll just have to keep those um, home security cameras uh, running and just make sure that it works because um, when it fails, that's going to be so funny still. It's no secret that Australia is dragging the chain on EV sales, but Mitsubishi is now kicking up a stink about how the hybrid market is being penalised. It looks like our federal government isn't making friends in Asia in any way, shape or form right now, does it, Matt? 
they can't take a trick. There's not enough subsidies in place for electric vehicle owners, not enough subsidies in place to actually propel electric vehicles into some more sales. We're still sitting about 0.8%. But then Mitsubishi, who don't have an electric vehicle and have a hybrid, mm. say that hybrids are being unfairly penalised. So you're right, the government can't take a trick. Not enough subsidies, too many subsidies for other ones. <laughs> what are they going to do about this? It just sounds terrible. <laughs> I was amazed when I saw this story because I have never ever heard Australia accused of being too generous with electric vehicle subsidies. And this is the first time anyone has said <laughs> they're too generous. Come up with. That's right. <laughs> now, they have got some logic in what they're saying, as much as I think it's all a bit of a joke, but there are some subsidies being introduced in New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. They're talking about $3,000 subsidies towards an electric vehicle. Not a lot, and it's got a whole range of different rules over it. So it's one of those rules that government puts in place or policies they put in place where they make it sound attractive for the media, but they'll probably never have anyone actually use it. Mm. But there's $3,000 there, theoretically. And that's then leading up to the point where they'll start to charge electric vehicle owners a per kilometre charge to drive your electric vehicle. You're not contributing all that money in fuel taxes. The, the road user charge. The road user charge, that's right. Isn't that ridiculous? Yeah, anyway. It is. And so what Mitsubishi is saying is that they don't get the subsidies because they're not a pure electric vehicle. They're a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle. And it's actually not a bad car. I actually owned one of these cars back in about 2014 or 13, and I thought it was quite a good car. It gave you a little bit of range at slow speeds and around town, and then the petrol engine kicked in to go at high speeds or out of town or over certain distances. So it's a good idea from a hybrid to get people introduced to the concept. But the hybrid vehicles are being penalised for the user charge, but they're not getting the subsidies. And that's what Mitsubishi is saying. Mm. If you're going to give us the charge for every kilometre you drive, then it only seems fair that you also give us a subsidy. If you're not going to give us a subsidy, then don't charge us on a per kilometre rate. You kind of feel like you're penalising hybrids in that way. Mm. And I'm not the greatest fan of hybrids, but I can see that they're a stepping stone. They can get people accustomed to or used to the idea of electric vehicle or even the Nissan e-power that we've spoken about before, having that acceleration from electric vehicle but having the petrol engine as a bit of a range anxiety stopper. So I think there is a place for hybrids to get us over the hump, for a lot of people over the hump. So I understand where Mitsubishi is coming from, but it still just makes me laugh that poor old Australian government is being accused of being too generous <laughs> with EV owners. I would love them to be too generous with EV owners. That would be fantastic for Australia. I get all worked up when you start talking about 80s nostalgia. I absolutely love it. Good things never die, and it looks like Rubik's Cube has been given some tech CPR here. How is connectivity going to soup up the not-so-dead-in-the-water Rubik's Cube? Well, I do put these stories in just for you, James. I know you love your nostalgia stories. And yeah, I do. You can't get much more nostalgic than the Rubik's Cube. About 1980, that came out. And I used to love it when I was a kid. One of my favourite things I ever had as a kid was a radio in the shape of a Coke bottle that I won in a Rubik's Cube competition. They used to have a bus that would travel around to different centres and you'd all get onto the bus and you'd do your Rubik's Cube and whoever got fastest would get a prize. So you'd do that and this Coke radio, I think you twisted the bottom of it for volume and the top of it to tune it in or vice versa, but it was the coolest thing at school. No one else had one. And that's what fed your your thirst for tech, wasn't it? You know, the- <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Look at this. It's a Coke bottle and a radio. How can they do that? <laughs> but it didn't have Bluetooth, James. That Rubik's Cube I used to play with back in the 80s didn't have Bluetooth, yeah. and that radio didn't have Bluetooth, mainly because Bluetooth didn't exist back in 1980. But now you've got a Rubik's Cube with Bluetooth, and we've talked about it before. Everything, obviously, is better with Bluetooth, and this is another example of it. But why would you want Bluetooth in a Rubik's Cube? Well, a few things it does because of that. So, first of all, you connect it to your phone. Your phone knows 
the exact state of your Rubik's Cube. So if you still can't solve the Rubik's Cube, then you can actually get some advice from your phone because it will tell you what moves to make and show you a little visual demonstration on the screen of your phone to say, here's the move you need to make. Provided that no one's changed the stickers around, right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's always a terrible (laughs) trick to play on someone. (laughs) Because you can make it unsolvable. If you change the stickers in the right way, it can be completely unsolvable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It used to annoy the hell out of me when someone did that to my Rubik's Cube. It was like, (laughs) what? (laughs) So, no, let's assume assume you've got friends in your house. They haven't been nasty and changed the stickers on you. So it will tell you what to do to basically do that. Then it'll also give you some help in practicing your speed solving. When you sit there and it will tell you which way to rearrange it to make it quite difficult for you to solve. And as soon as you pick up and start going for it, that's when the time will start. So you don't have to hit a button to start or to start timing and away you go. And then at the end of it, it will tell you how long it took you, which is obviously important. Also, how many moves it took you to actually get to the end solution. So that gives you an idea of, okay, I'm not being as efficient as I could be. I, I need to work on some other moves to become more efficient. But the main thing I like about it is I do some Rubik's Cube competitions with my kids and there's always the argument, if they beat me, of course, there's no argument if it's the other way around, but if they beat me, there's always the <laughs> argument that they've hit the timer too early or they set it down, it wasn't completely solved. So what I love about this is that we can sit there, have the Rubik's Cube sitting there, and the phone can be the adjudicator because as soon as the pieces are in the right place, the phone knows about it because it's communicating via Bluetooth to the cube itself, and it says, problem solved. Now, there's your time. So there can be no argument anymore. Well, I'm in awe, Matt. I'm in absolute awe. Yeah, I have solved the Rubik's Cube a couple of times, but uh, I'm not far from the stage of uh, timing myself. And those those 12-year-old kids, it's just a blur of fingers and colour, and they do it in less than five seconds, whatever. That's that's something um, beyond me, yeah. Quite incredible, yeah, that's right. So it is cool, (laughs) and, and I think some of these things, I mean, I get sucked in by these things, James. The air guitar, you know, that we talked Mm. about it previously. So I've got my air guitar turned up. So when we can get back together again, I have to show you my moves on the air guitar. It's a cool little device. Well, these all these were awesome toys, and they are all staving off um, dementia uh, and and keeping those brain connections uh, being formed. You're putting my age up a bit now, James. (laughs) You're telling me I'm getting dementia already. Well, (laughs) problem solving we know is a way of staving off these um, these diseases that we attributed to uh, elderly people in the past. Uh, Yeah, and these toys are, are. or a step in the right direction. I've got to order one of these as well, James. I haven't ordered it yet, but I will order one of these because I love it so much. But my air guitar too, I've blown it there because I did mention it my son, that was going to be his Christmas present and I've got it there. But my son actually said, so you got my Christmas present. So he had listened to the episode where I mentioned that that was going to be his Christmas <laughs> present. <laughs> oh, the surprise is gone. I didn't want to tell him I was going to play with it first and then re-wrap it up and then pretend it was brand new for him. <laughs> Okay, folks, Sydney to Melbourne on a single charge. That's the hope coming out of new EV battery technology. Matt, uh, it's still in the developmental phase, but Aussie researchers say that rethinking the lithium-ion battery could be the nail in the coffin for the fossil fuel-powered cars, finally. It could be, absolutely, and we got some really clever people in Australia. They're really innovative. They come up with great, clever ideas. Sometimes we lose them overseas, but hopefully this is one of those that stays here mm. in Australia and we market that across the rest of the world, a bit like CSIRO did with Wi-Fi. It'd be great to see that sort of innovation continue. But lithium-ion, we know what we've got with lithium-ion. It's been developed a fair bit. It's still not at the end of its development stage by any means, but we know in a car we'll get several thousand recharges out of it. We've got, say, a 100-kilowatt-hour battery is something that some cars are getting that sort of size. You'll get 600 kilometres or so out of that, but it'd be nice to go a bit further. Lithium sulphur has been around, and people have known about lithium sulphur, and it's got great energy density, but the biggest problem with lithium sulphur is it doesn't get thousands of recharges. It gets 
50 rechargers. So you can imagine buying a car with a lithium sulfur battery, you run it for a month or two and then take it back to the dealer and say, I'll have a new battery thing. So it doesn't sound like that'd be a great solution. So mm. it's never really been considered seriously until some researchers at Monash University decided on a spoonful of sugar, of all things. Sugar? So they found an old paper from back in the 1980s, an old scientific paper from the 1980s, which talked about sulfur in the soil and how sugar could actually change the sulfur compounds, help it retain the sulfur in those compounds. And the researchers went, well, that's interesting. I wonder if we could, and they followed on that logical progression, and they came up with this lithium sulfur battery combining sugar in it, and suddenly they've now gotten to the point where they've got maybe a 1,000 rechargers, not quite as good as lithium-ion yet. I love science. This is amazing. <laughs> it is. You are right. I do love that about science where you can actually have a whole range of discussions about different things, and next thing you know, you're talking about soil and sugar and you're getting a car that can go a longer distance. So yeah. you never know where it's going to go to next, do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you say that, it, that, that they've dug this paper out from the early 80s. It reminds me of, of a number of other stories that have happened through history where someone has done some research and it's just been shelved. People didn't really think it had any value in it at all. And then someone has dug it out and gone, hang on a second. There's a clue that we can stitch together within a puzzle that we've been solving about something that's about completely different stuff over here. And and um, and next thing you know, we've got new tech yeah. that is going to you know, take us deeper into the future. Fantastic. Yeah, no, you're right. I, I do get excited by that. I just love how that all comes together sometimes. And it's not one person. It's a combination no. of all these different ideas mm. to come up with the final solution. So the, the energy density of these batteries you're talking about, 500 watt-hours per kilogram, which is good. It's probably about twice the energy density of a lithium-ion battery, roughly. So it means that we might be talking about a car that, instead of doing maybe 600 kilometres, might do 900, 1,000 kilometres. Melbourne to Sydney on a single charge, suddenly that becomes possible. Not that many people drive Melbourne to Sydney that often, mm. but it seems to be one of those things a bit like... How can I go across another ball with my electric car? It's one of those things that I want to be able to go to Melbourne to Sydney or Sydney to Brisbane. Yeah. I want to go those big 900,000 kilometre distances because I do it once every three years when we go on holidays there or whatever it might be. <laughs> it's just that limiting factor. It's about being limited in what you're able to do if you were to choose to buy a product. But um, you're not really limited. No, you're not really limited. But if they could get this happening, they're cheaper. The better energy density, mm. they'll actually be in some way, hopefully get to the point where they'll have the same number of recharges. And overall, I can see this bringing prices down of cars and giving better range. So it's that holy grail of get better range and get the price down. Wow, how fantastic is that? Now, don't go and ask your car dealer tomorrow for one of these. It's probably, my guess would be five years before we'll see production cars actually having this sort of technology in them. But who knows? It might change quicker than that. There might be this great surge of demand across the world with EVs. There might be this great need for it. Most problems can be solved with money. So if there's enough money thrown at this sort of problem, you get more researchers working on it, and suddenly a solution that might have been five years to get to market might be three years. Wonderful to hear about these future solutions. I'm absolutely blown away, excited. And somewhat inevitably, we've come to the end for this week at least. Matt, your ability to sniff out the tastiest techno truffles is uncanny. And I've got to say, it's also become an excellent excuse for us to stretch the legs when we get a chance to get out on the track like we did last week. Thanks for tuning in to Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson, folks. I'm your host, James Eddy, and don't forget to like and subscribe. Subscribe.